good evening. This is the Wine of Life podcast. I am Wes, and tonight we're going to be um, discussing Augustinian Christians. And people use this term a lot. We are Augustinian Christians or something to that nature. A lot of Reformed Christians might say that. Um, Many Protestants might say that. Some uh, Reformed Baptists say that. Um, But I want to go over some of the things that Augustine himself taught and show where I disagree with that um, perspective. So we'll get right into it. There's five things I'm going to talk about that I disagree about being an Augustinian Christian. This is not to knock Augustine. He was a genius. Um, He was an incredible theologian, incredible thinker. And uh, in the West, if you are a Christian at all, you are somebody who has been uh, deeply affected and influenced by Augustine, whether you know it or not. The first ever um, church father that I ever read was Augustine's Confessions. My grandfather gave it to me around, uh, I think, 07, 08, something like that. So he was the first ever church father I read, and uh, he has just influenced, um, he's just a major influence. He was the major influence on the the, uh, Protestant reformers, although I think they kind of... uh, I think they cherry-picked some stuff from him. But we're going to discuss um, five things that I think are things that we, as, say, Southern Baptists or people who are Protestants, really would not agree with at all with regards to it. Um, And then we'll talk about why there are people who are Protestants who still contend that they are, in fact, Augustinian Christians. Uh, But number one, we get to the big difference um, between... Uh, Augustine and someone like myself, is his ecclesiology. Um, His ecclesiology, that is the way that the church functions, the way it works. And the first part of that is that he believed in the primacy of the papacy. That is, the Pope in Rome was the final authority and the main authority within the church and the representative of the whole church. There are numerous statements he made regarding this particularly. Um, in his uh, controversy with the Donatists. But I'm just going to read here from his psalm, uh, from, from a, something he wrote in 393 A.D. against the Donatists. He says, Number the bishops from the See of Peter itself, the See of Peter is the Bishop of Rome, and in that order of fathers see who succeeded whom, that is the rock against which the gates of hell do not prevail. Now, obviously, um, with regards to that, if you're a Southern Baptist or any Protestant, really, or even anybody anybody in the East, anybody, um, rejects the primacy of the papacy. This was something that um, Augustine clearly taught in his teachings. So that would be the first bit. Um, but the second bit, and I think it pertains um, to ecclesiology as well, is who has the final authority within the church? Is it the scriptures, or is it tradition, or is it a combination of both? Now, we all have um, traditions that we hold to, depending on what cultures we come from, and so on and so forth. But this was his perspective that he taught. So, in his letter to Janarius, he says, but in regard to those observances which we carefully attend and which the whole world keeps and which derive not from scripture but from tradition we are given to understand that they are recommended and ordained to be kept either by the apostles themselves or by or by uh, plenary councils which are ecumenical councils 
the authority of which is quite vital in the church. So there's a vitality to the various um, traditions that come about through apostolic tradition or through the ecumenical councils. And this is the perspective that the Roman Catholics hold today. This is the same perspective that the Eastern Church holds today. This is something that, as uh, a Protestant or you know a Baptist, certainly, we would not hold to. Now, some people would say, well, he's not saying that tradition holds the same level of authority as scriptures do, but we're going to, I'm going to prove that sort of wrong here in the next bit, because that's his ecclesiology. That is, he holds tradition and scripture on the same level, and he holds the primacy of the papacy. So there is a serious difference between people who would say they're Baptist or people who would say they're Protestant in general, and the ecclesiology of Augustine. Number two is his view on baptism, and this is where um, we get into how he views tradition. He says this on his work on the forgiveness of sins and baptism. He says the apostles, the apostles, sorry, the apostles indeed gave no injunctions on the point. But the custom of infant baptism, so speaking of infant baptism, may be supposed to have had its origin in apostolic tradition, just as there are many things which are observed by the whole church and therefore are fairly held to have been enjoined by the apostles, which yet are not mentioned in their writings. So he acknowledges that infant baptism is not part of Scripture, but ought to still be done on the basis of apostolic tradition. So he does hold that tradition... Uh, is on an equal plane as the scriptures, and the things that are held by tradition ought to be done within the church, just as, as the same as we ought to be obedient to the things within scripture itself. So he believes in infant baptism, and that's something also that as a Baptist we don't believe in. The second part about baptism, which is significantly different uh, than what we teach also in the work on forgiveness of sins in baptism, uh, he writes this about baptismal regeneration. He says, But the sacrament of baptism is undoubtedly the sacrament of regeneration. Wherefore, as the man who has never lived cannot die, and he who has never died cannot rise again, so he who has never been born cannot be born again, from which the conclusion arises that no one who has not been born could possibly have been born again in his father. Born again, however, a man must be after he has been born, because except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, which is from Scripture of John 3. Even an infant, therefore, must be imbued with the sacrament of regeneration, lest without it his would be an unhappy exit out of this life. And this baptism is not administered except for the remission of sins. Now, within baptism, there's what some uh, you would call a spectrum of people who believe that uh, baptism is an operation of God for the forgiveness of sins, but is not salvific or causative of salvation. And then there's people on the other side of that spectrum that say that uh, baptism is merely symbolic. But within the Baptist tradition in general, there's no one who argues that baptism itself is regenerative, that it is the way that we are born again. And so this teaching is something that uh, it uh, is held by um, some uh, Protestants. So uh, if Lutherans would allow themselves to be called Protestants, sometimes they like it, sometimes they don't. Depends who you're talking to. But Lutherans do hold that baptism is regenerative. And of course, um, Roman Catholics do. And um, 
and the Eastern Church does. Um, but the thing is, is, as to why it's regenerative and as to why infants has to be, they would have an unhappy exit out of this life because he affirmed the fact that infants themselves are condemned. And this has to be, um, this goes into his soteriology, which we'll touch on in a little bit. Um, but he believed that uh, infants would die and go to hell. Now, this is something that we as Baptists do not affirm. And many other people who call themselves Reformed or Calvinists would also say they're not. So if you, if you listen to somebody like John MacArthur, he would also say that infants don't go to hell. Um, but the reason why we would say that you infants don't go to hell, it's not because we deny original sin. We don't deny that people are... Uh, born with a sinful nature and are born separate from God. It's just that God does not judge until um, they are of the age of accountability because where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so we see this happen in the desert when the people of, of God, of Israel, died of unbelief. But those who were 20 years younger or younger uh, were not judged in the same way. Likewise, infants are not judged in the same way that adults are because they cannot believe or not believe. And so Christ says, those who are condemned already are those who do not believe in John 3.18. And the law was given specifically to uh, condemn people. So obviously before the law was given, that was a time when God winked at the sins of man. And Paul says this himself in his sermon, Acts 17.24-31. But now... The salvation, the grace of salvation of God has been revealed to all men, There, in, according to Titus 2.11. So there is a responsibility then and a requirement for all men uh, to repent. And that is why we go out and tell the gospel to many. But that does not condemn infants because they cannot know or understand what the gospel is. So they don't believe or not believe. Uh, and they have not committed a sin as such. They don't have the law as such revealed to them, therefore they are not condemned. So we would not say that infants go to hell. We would not say that aborted uh, children either go to hell, which is, uh, I've heard some arguments uh, say that um, some Roman Catholics might believe that, but he believed in infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. So that is something that separates him uh, pretty widely again with uh, Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists. So now we come to the third point, and that is prayer to the saints or prayer for the saints. And he says this in his homily on St. John uh, number 84. He says, At the Lord's table, we do not commemorate martyrs in the same way that we do others who rest in peace, so as to pray for them, but rather that they may pray for us, that we may follow in their footsteps. So one of the reasons why there is an invocation of the saints in the Roman Catholic tradition and in the Eastern tradition is they believe that the saints hear our prayers and then they pray to God for us. And he seems to affirm this. And this this um, is used by Roman Catholics often to say that uh, Augustine supported prayer to the saints and prayer for the saints. In a uh, a writing against Faustus, he says, as Christian a Christian people celebrates together in religious solemnity the memorials of the martyrs, both to encourage their being in imitated, and so that it can share in their merits and be aided by their prayers. So, one of the uh, reasons that they 
um, pray to the saints also and perform certain deeds. Um, they want to share in the merit of the saints that are already passed on. And this is something else that he here clearly teaches. Um, so you pray and you perform certain deeds like visiting relics or whatever. Now, it wouldn't have been as uh, what it ended up being in the Middle Ages as it was in Augustine's time. Uh, but he does affirm these things. And these are very far away from anything that uh, any Protestant would do. Um, so that is something that we would uh, quite certainly reject completely. Um, we don't pray to saints. Uh, we pray to Christ alone. We have a direct, uh, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we have this direct connection to God. We can approach the throne of grace boldly, and we don't need the intercessory prayers of those who have passed away. doesn't mean we don't believe that the Lord is the Lord of both the living and the dead, or that there is a connection to the living and the dead. Of course there is, uh, because we're all in Christ. But... Um, and whether or not they know what's going on down here or not, um, there seems to be evidence of that as well. But that doesn't mean that we can pray to them. Uh, prayer is often seen as an act of worship itself. Um, we don't find anywhere else in the Old Testament where people are praying to people who have already passed on. But Augustine uh, teaches that. So those, are, those three things are things that he's very far away on. The fourth one is his eschatology, and that is the study of the last things. And in that, I'm going to read uh, from the big book he wrote, The City of God, here. Um, in book 20, uh, chapter 7, he writes about the book of Revelation, and it's, it's um, significantly different than what we would teach. Uh, he says this, now, some people have assumed, and he just read Revelation 20, 1 through 6, about Satan being um, dragged down and chained into the bottomless pit. And then Christ coming, there being a first resurrection, and Christ reigning for a thousand years. And then after that, there being a second resurrection after the thousand years, because Satan will again be loosed. And so he's just read that passage from Revelation 20, and he says this now. He says, now some people have assumed, in view of this passage, that the first resurrection will be a bodily resurrection. They have particularly excited, among other reasons, by the actual number of a thousand years, taking it as appropriate that there should be a kind of Sabbath for the saints for all time, a holy rest, that is, after the labors of the six thousand years since man's creation, when in retribution for his great sin he was expelled from paradise into the troubles of this mortal condition. Scripture says, with the, one, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. On this assumption, there follows after the completion of six thousand years, six of these days, a kind of seventh Sabbath rest for the final thousand years, with the saints rising again, obviously, to celebrate this Sabbath. Now, what he's getting at is that he, in fact, disagrees with this. He doesn't believe the first resurrection is a bodily resurrection, and he doesn't believe the thousand years is a literal thousand years. He says this notion would be in some degree tolerable if we believed that in that Sabbath some delights of a spiritual character were to be available for the saints because of the presence of the Lord. I also entertained this notion at one time. So he believed in this. Uh, he believed in a premillennial coming of Christ and a ruling and reigning of a thousand years. He says, but in fact, those people assert that those who have risen again will spend the rest of 
that will spend their rest in the most unrestrained material feasts, in which there will be so much to eat and drink that not only will those supplies keep within no bounds of moderation, but will also exceed the limits even of incredibility. But this can only be believed by materialists, and those with spiritual interests give the name Kilius, that Kilius, uh, the Kili means a thousand. We would call them uh, uh, millennialists today. He says, to the believers in this picture, a term which we can translate by a word derived from the equivalent Latin, which is millenarians, so millennialists basically, it would take too long to refute them in detail. We ought instead to show how this scriptural passage is to be taken. So he rejects the coming of Christ, the first resurrection, bodily resurrection, and the rule and reign of Christ for a thousand years. That is, the he rejects the millennial reign. From an eschatological perspective, um, the early church fathers did believe that. And we can, we can discuss how the rapture is something different, and people make fun of, of uh, Southern Baptists and things about the rapture, but, uh, and we can talk about what he says in this in another video, because um, he talks about 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 as well, uh, but the, uh, or 1 Thessalonians 5. But the point is, is that he rejects what the early church fathers were teaching with regards to eschatology, and he would reject what we um, would teach about that. That is that Christ will come, a resurrection of the dead uh, will take place, and that we will rule and reign with him 4,000 years before the end. But he says this, he says the Lord Christ himself says, no one can get into the house of a strong man and carry off his property without first tr tying up the strong man. By the strong man, he intends us to understand the devil, because the devil has the power to take the human race into captivity. The property that Christ was to carry off represents those whom the devil held in his possessions, but they were to become Christ's faithful followers. It was to tie up this strong man that the angel and the apostles of vision in the apocalypse was descending from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the abyss and a chain. He sees the dragon, that serpent of old, whose other names are the devil and Satan. He chains him up for a thousand years. That means he puts a check and a bridle on his power to lead astray and hold in possession those who are to be set free. The thousand years, as it seems to me, can be interpreted in two ways. It may indicate this event happens in the last thousand years, so he believes that Christ would come after that thousand years. That is, the sixth millennium, or the sixth day as it were, of which the latter stretches are now passing, and a Sabbath is to follow that has no evening. The rest, that is to say, of the saints which has no end. Thus our author uses the term a thousand years to, to denote the last part of the millennium or day, which remains before the end of the world employing the figure of speech by which the whole stands for the part. So he doesn't believe in a literal thousand years where Christ himself comes and reigns. Um, so then we move on. Alternatively, for the second understanding, alternatively, he may have intended the thousand years to stand for the whole period of this world's history, signifying the entirety of time by a perfect number. For, of course, the number 1,000 is the cube of 10, since 10 is multiplied by 10 is 100, a square but plain figure. But to give height to the figure and make it solid, 100 is again multiplied by 10, and we get 1,000. Moreover, it seems that 100, it's sometimes used to stand for totality. For example, the Lord promises um, anyone who left all his possessions and followed him, he would receive a hundredfold in this world. And we may say that the apostle is explaining this when he says, uh, when he speaks of seeming to have nothing and yet possessing everything. 
because in an earlier time it has been said that the entire world is included in the wealth of a man of faith. If this is so, how much more does 1,000 represent totality, being the square of 10 converted into a solid figure? Hence, when we read in the psalm, he has always remembered his covenant, the word which he gave to a thousand generations. There's no better interpretation of those words than by taking a thousand generations as signifying all generations. So his eschatology is significantly different than ours. He does not believe in a literal rule and reign of a thousand years. And so you ask the question, if the ecclesiology is basically like Roman Catholics and his view on baptism is very Roman Catholic, he prays to the saints and he prays for the saints, and his eschatology is completely different than ours, why are there evangelicals who say that they are Augustinian Christians? One of the reasons is, well, the main reason, is the soteriology. And that is this idea that grace itself uh, precedes faith, that that's the way um, that is supposed to be the order of salvation as such. Now, in his work on the predestination of the saints, Augustine changed his mind because uh, the church fathers don't preach this. The church fathers don't preach the inability of the will. They do not preach that there is a, um, a necessity of a grace that precedes you being able to have faith that when the gospel message, that being a, a means of grace in and of itself, is preached, the image of God is capable then of responding or rejecting the gospel message. This is how I would say the Bible quite clearly teaches it, and this is also how the early church fathers taught it. They did not teach the inability of the will. But in his issues with Pelagians, um, he started writing a lot of uh, things in his later writings about the inability of the will, but he says this in his work on the predestinations of the saints. He says, and it was chiefly by this testimony that I myself also was convinced when I was in a similar error, and this was his error, thinking that faith whereby we believe on God is not God's gift, but that it is in us from ourselves. So he does not believe that the image of God uh, is able to have faith in God at all. You cannot believe in God or make any sort of step or even recognize your condition or recognize who God is. You, you need grace prior to it. This is what he goes on to say. And that by it we may obtain the gifts of God. So it, he, he used to believe that you could have faith and through that faith you would then obtain the gifts of God. That would be grace, essentially. He says, whereby we may live temperately and righteously and piously in this world. For I did not think that faith was preceded by God's grace. That's what he used to not think. Now he does. That grace precedes faith. So that by its means would be given to us what we might profitably ask, except that we could not believe if the proclamation of the truth did not precede, but that we should consent when the gospel was preached to us. I thought that was our own doing. It came to us from ourselves. So he used to believe that if you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you could then accept it or reject it. And that when you had faith in Christ in that message, that gospel message you heard, you would then receive the gifts of God. He says, now that's that's not so. Um, he says, this is my error. It's sufficiently indicated in some small works of mine before my episcopate. So he changed his mind on this and came to this particular idea of soteriology. And we're going to read about this in one of his last works, this thing he wrote about hope, uh, faith, hope, and love that uh, people call the Enchidirion. I'm probably saying that's, that wrong, but 
people who've read it know what I'm talking about. But in chapter 118, um, he says this about grace uh, preceding faith. He says, But if God regards a man with solicitude so that he then believes in God's help in fulfilling his commands, and if a man begins to be led by the Spirit of God, then the mightier power of love struggles against the power of the flesh. And although there is still in man a power that fights against him, his infirmity being not yet fully healed, yet he lives by faith and lives righteously in so far as he does not yield to evil desires, conquering them by his love of righteousness. This is the third stage of the man of good hope. Now that is, the way that one has faith is if God regards a man with solicitude so that he then believes. Now this is uh, something that I would call an inversion of the way Scripture teaches this. That is, this is saying that you are saved by faith through grace. Whereas Scripture in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says that we are saved by grace through faith, so that you do, in fact, receive grace through faith. So faith does precede grace. He teaches the inversion of that, and this is what the um, reformers jumped on. Now, the difference as to why I think they cherry pick some things is because um, Augustine's ecclesiology and his sacramental theology, his views of baptism, are connected to soteriology. Um, the reformers decided to disconnect, and Luther not as much, but Calvin, uh, well, when you get to like Zwingli, he certainly did. And so that is why you get many people who don't have the same ecclesiology or the same sacramental theology um, holding on to um, a part of Augustine's soteriology. And so you get people like R.C. Sproul uh, and other people, um, maybe somebody like Al Mohler, who would say that they're Augustinian in some sense. They're not really. And anyways, I don't believe that that is correct scripturally anyways. Um, and the reason why he believes this, though, and, and this is important to also look at, is that he believes uh, in this particular view of God's sovereignty. So I'm going to read from chapter 103 of the of the Faith, uh, Hope, and Love book here. This is about how he views God's sovereignty. He says, Now the apostle had enjoined that prayers should be offered for all men. He's talking about this in 1 Timothy 2. He says, And especially for kings and all that are in authority, whose worldly pomp and pride could be supposed to be a sufficient cause for them to despise the humility of the Christian faith. And then continuing his argument, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God and our Savior, that is, to pray even for such as these, the apostle to remove any warrant for despair as who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. Uh, truly then, God has judged it good that through the prayers of the lowly, he would deign to grant salvation to the exalted, a paradox that we have seen exemplified. Our Lord also uses the same manner of speech in the gospel where he says to the Pharisees, ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. Obviously the Pharisees did not tithe what belonged to others, nor all the herbs of all the people of other lands. Therefore, just as we would interpret every herb to mean every kind of herb. We also can interpret all men to mean all kinds of men. Now, this is where you get into the idea of limited atonement. That when God says that he died for the sins of the world, that when uh, Paul says 
that he would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that he's not talking about everyone. He's talking specifically about an elect, a special elect. And of course, from a Southern Baptist perspective, this is something that we reject. We go out and tell the gospel to all people. We don't believe um, that God is telling us to pray for certain people. We believe that he wants us to pray for all people. But he believes that we are to pray for and tell the gospel to all kinds of men, not all men. And so you see he uses this verse from Luke 11 when it talks about the Pharisees tithing mint and ruin all manner of herbs. Uh, obviously, he's not saying they tithe every herb that exists all around the world. They're just ta- he, God is just talking about the kinds, and he's, he uses that to um, interpret 1 Timothy 2, and the Reformers then use that to interpret um, passages like John 3.16 and so on and so forth. This is something, as a Southern Baptist, I have always rejected. We believe that Christ died for the sins of all the world, not for some of the world and then others he didn't. And we believe that when God says, when Paul tells us that God would have all men to be saved, that he indeed wants all men to be saved, and that men reject him due to unrighteousness. Um, So he says, we can interpret it in in any other fashion, as long as we are not compelled to believe that the omnipotent hath willed anything to be, which was not done. So this is his view on sovereignty, that if people aren't getting saved, it is not because they have decided to reject Christ. It is that Christ has decided not to give them uh, the grace necessary for them to have faith. So because grace must, in fact, precede faith. And so this is where the Reformers pull out the idea of unconditional election and um, limited atonement. And even there's some Baptists in um, who are Reformed Baptists who will say they're four-point or three-point Calvinists. Generally, they reject limited atonement. That's one of the, the first things they reject. The fact is that it's pretty clear that Augustine was leaning that way, and that that's what he taught. Um, so, And these were um, pretty... Um, pretty new in inventions within the doctrine of human will and within the doctrine of original sin. It just wasn't taught this way. Um, certainly the inability of the will was an invention of Augustine, um, I would say, uh, generally. I, there aren't many people in the Church Fathers who teach that, and most scholars agree with that, but he came up with something else that we're seeing a lot of these days. Um, and it's called uh, original guilt. I'm going to read a good bit about what he says, but this is a part of original sin that we are seeing a lot uh, within various social justice uh, movements within the church today. But it's also something that as Baptists, we have always rejected. We don't accept this. So he says, yet when the original sin is signified by the use of the plural number, as we say when infants are baptized unto the remission of sins, instead of saying unto the remission of sin, then we have the converse expression, in which the singular is expressed by the plural number. Thus in the gospel it says of Herod's death, they are dead, which sought the young man's life, uh, the young child's life. Uh, it does not say he is dead. The, in Exodus, it says the people have made them gods of gold when they actually made one calf. He says still, even in that one sin, which entered into the world by one man and so spread to all men, and on account of which infants are baptized, because, of course, he believed that infants were, in fact, 
uh, condemned unto hell. He says one can recognize a plurality of sins if that single sin is divided, so to say, into its separate elements. For there's pride in it, since man preferred to be his own rule rather than the rule of God. There's sacrilege, for man did not acknowledge God. There's murder, since he cast himself down to death. And there's spiritual fornication, for the integrity of the human mind was corrupted by the seduction of the serpent and theft. Since the forbidden fruit was snatched, and avarice, since he hungered more than should have sufficed for him, and whatever other sins could be discovered in the, dil in the diligent analysis of that one sin, speaking of Adam's sin. It says, it's also said, and not without support, and this is where original guilt comes into play, that infants are involved in the sins of their parents, not only the first pair, speaking of Adam and Eve, but even of their own, of whom they were born. Indeed, the divine judgment, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, definitely applies to them before they come into the new covenant by regeneration. Uh, this covenant was foretold by Ezekiel when he said that the son should not bear the father's sins nor the proverb any longer in Israel. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And that comes from Ezekiel 18. But you see where this is going here. To believe that we are guilty of our own parents' sin all the way back to uh, Adam and Eve. And this leads to some serious consequences that he will go into. It says this, this is why each one of them must be born again, so that he may thereby be absolved of whatever sin was in him at the time of birth. That is, he is guilty of his parents' sin and their parents' sin and so on and so forth, and that baptism is the only thing that can wash that away. He says the sins committed by evil doing after birth can be healed by repentance, as indeed we see it happen even after baptism. For the new birth, which is regeneration, would not have been instituted except for the fact that the first birth, which is generation, was tainted, and to such a degree that one born of even a lawful wedlock said, I was conceived in iniquities, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That was David in Psalm 51. Nor did he say in iniquity or in sin, as he might have quite correctly. Rather, he preferred to say in iniquities and sins, because as I explained above, there are many sins in that one sin, which is passed into all men, and which was so great that human nature was changed, and by it brought under the necessity of death. And also because of their other sins, such as those of parents, which even if they cannot change our nature in the same way, still involve the children in guilt, unless the gracious God uh, of mercy interposes. This is where we get to the tough, to the, the tough bit here that we would reject. He says, in the matter of sins of one's other parents, those who stand as one's forebears from Adam down to one's own parents, a question might well be raised whether a man at birth is involved in the evil deeds of all of his forebears and their multiplied original sins so that the later in time he's born, the worst estate he is born in. Now, I think many people know who, that that's been taught quite regularly in the last few years. Uh, we even see people who aren't Christians, like uh, Ibram Kendi teaching that white people are born with an original sin. He just did a speech about how three-month-olds are racist. Um, and this is being taught by a lot of Reformed theologians. I talked about Christina Edmondson, um, Jamar Tisby, Dottie Lewis, a lot of these types of people. Justin Gaboni, I think is his name. People like that. Um, that is the passing on of original guilt. And they, they'll say original sin, but guilt is involved in that. Not that we are condemned before God, but we are guilty in that all of the 
particular sins, not nature, but the particular sins are passed on to us from our forefathers. And this is the uh, result of this innovation of original guilt that we don't see in the Church Fathers. If you read Tertullian, for instance, one of the reasons why he talks about in his treatise on baptism, why he says that people should wait in terms of uh, baptizing infants is because they're innocent. Not And he believed in original sin. He believed that we, by nature, are separated from God. But where there's no law, there is no transgression. They don't uh, they're not capable of understanding what sin is, therefore there isn't a need for baptism, and if they do get baptized, they might not live up to what that baptism is supposed to be uh, later on in life, and therefore he says they should fear baptism more than fear um, delaying it. Um, but he's not against infant baptism in his writing, so I'm not trying to say that. Uh, I want to give it as fair a, a, a fair uh, discussion as possible about it. But he acknowledges that infants are innocent. He says that explicitly. But Augustine says otherwise. They are in fact not, and it's not just by nature. He actually claims that they are guilty of the actual sins, and that they are being, they're going to be judged for the sins of their forebears going forward, so that the later in time you're born, the worse state that you are in. He says, or whether on this very account God will threaten to visit the sins of the parents as far but no farther than the third and fourth generations, because in his mercy he will not continue his wrath beyond that. It is not his purpose that those not given the grace of regeneration be crushed under too heavy a burden in their eternal damnation, as they would be if they were bound to bear as original guilt all the sins of their ancestors from the beginning of the human race and to pay the due penalty for them. Whether another solution to so difficult a problem might or might not be found by a more diligent search and interpretation of Holy Scripture, I dare not rashly affirm. Now, we have found people who've decided to affirm their own opinions about that, particularly about uh, white people in this uh, sort of new situation we're living in, that original guilt ought to be established. Um, that is, again, something that we don't uh, subscribe to within the Southern Baptist denomination. We don't place original guilt of the fathers and the mothers and so on upon infants. And so that's another reason we would not um, agree to uh, we would not agree to infant baptism. So having said all that, um, those are the reasons, those five reasons, the ecclesiology, the sacramental theology, and I just did baptism, I didn't do the Lord's Supper, but um, prayer to the saints, eschatology, and soteriology. As a Southern Baptist, those are things that I completely disagree with Augustine on all of those points. And I'm really disappointed that there are a lot of people who are Protestant or um, or trying to be, you know, Reformed Baptist or whatever, and they're trying to point out the fact that we're really Augustinian Christians and things like that. So if you go to pastors who say that, or if you go to, you know, seminaries, Southern Baptist seminaries or Reformed seminaries, and they're talking like this, go and read Augustine for yourself and read the whole thing through. Um, he's much, much closer to what we would know as Roman Catholic today. He just is. Um, there are a lot of uh, cherry-picking from the Reformers in the way they took it. Don't just read the Reformers or other teachers who are trying to teach things about Augustine. Go and get, and it's a huge body of work, but go and get his work and read them for yourselves. So that's my issue. Um, I've wanted to do that to say 
I myself am not an Augustinian Christian. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with disagreeing with the people of the, the Church Fathers and so on. They're really interesting to read, and I highly recommend reading um, Augustine. He was a brilliant man uh, and a you know, prolific theologian. So if you like the content, or even if you disagree, I got into an interesting discussion with a Roman Catholic about Augustine recently, and um, I ended up getting him on my, on my side about it, about the way I looked at it. But um, if you want to say something about it, go ahead and put it in the uh, comments below. Subscribe if you want, support if you want, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.